Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome back to Nerdlog, episode number six. Today we are going to try to keep it to the normal program by having a topic at the beginning, and then we will dive into the Nerdlog with reviews of both Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, and then we are circling back around to Mega Man to review Mega Man number three on the NES, played on the PlayStation 4 with the Mega Man Collection, or the Mega Man Legacy Collection. So, let's get started with the topic of the show. Topic of the week, origin of my love for fantasy. One thing I really enjoy with pretty much any piece of media is a good origin story, whether it be superheroes with Spider-Man, even though we're, at this point, we've seen Spider-Man's origin story enough times. We've seen enough Uncle Ben's get killed for a lifetime's worth of Spider-Man origin stories. But I love origin stories when it comes to superheroes. I love it when it comes to fantasy origin stories of different types of characters. Even in video games, the characters have origin stories. What happened, what gave them that drive, what got them where they were going, so you could sort of swap out origin story for their backstory is sort of the same sort of thing I'm going for. So, because I am reviewing video games and reviewing fantasy and science fiction books off my nerd log, I thought it would be appropriate to do a two-part series on the origin of why I like these types of media, specifically fantasy and science fiction books and video games. Originally, I had planned for this just to be a two-part series, but the more I think about it, I do believe that there are certain genres in both books and in video games that deserve their own topic, so today I will be just focusing on my love for fantasy books and where that love came from and where it started. So, growing up, I was a homeschooled child, and books were part of life. You were always reading a book. My mom was an avid English supporter. She was hugely into literature, especially classical literature, things like Little Women, Jane Eyre, stuff like that. She really pushed for. But she also had love for certain fantasy books. Now, with her love for the fantasy genre came mostly from religious-backed, family-esque, safe fantasy books or fantasy series. And what I mean by this is growing up in a conservative Protestant church and family group, there were a couple of series that you always heard about being the ones that Christians read. And I still today identify as a conservative Protestant, even though my views have changed quite a bit. I wouldn't consider myself far right or anywhere near that. I'm definitely a lot more mid-leaning when it comes to everything. Sort of, I have some Democratic views and some Republican views, some conservative views and some liberal views. So I do consider myself some sort of moderate. But when it comes to Christianity, I'm definitely still firmly in the Protestant category of that. 
mostly identifying as a Baptist. But back to what the church did with fantasy books is they tended to be okay with fantasy books that had been written by a Christian. Even if the book itself didn't necessarily have direct allegory to the Christian walk or the Christian life, as long as it was written by a Christian, the church could get behind it. And the books that I'm mostly talking about there are, for one, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. These were seven books that were highly talked about in all sort of Christian groups. They are great books. I read them as I'm talking about this origin story for my love of fantasy. This was one of the series that really got me into fantasy, along with a bigger one I'm about to mention. But the Narnia books are definitely directly Christian. Like they're not just written by a Christian author. C.S. Lewis was a great theologian. He wrote many a book, mostly nonfiction books, or sort of semi-fiction books that had a point more towards theology and the Christian walk. But his Narnia books were written for children, fairy tale-like books, written for, like I said, children, young adults, even though his writing is a lot more advanced than what we see in today's young adult literature. But looking past that, his books, even though they had their own stories, they were very obviously allegorical towards Christianity or about Christianity. You had Aslan as a step-in for Jesus. He died. He sacrificed himself. He died and he rose again and came back and saved everybody. So the Narnia books were definitely talked about quite a lot in the Christian circles. The bigger influence on my life was, of course, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Everybody knows this book, even non-mainstream fantasy connoisseurs know about Tolkien. Even if they didn't know before the 2000s, then they definitely knew after the early 2000s when the Peter Jackson films were made. And most people knew that J.R.R. Tolkien was a practicing, devout Christian, even though I believe he was a Catholic. People, even though there's sort of like a Protestant-Catholic rivalry disputes between certain theological ideas, all Christian groups sort of claim Tolkien as their own, you know, oh, he was a Christian, so his work was good. Which, of course, his work was amazing. I mean, it's the Lord of the Rings. That's one of the most, if not the most, influential fantasy works of all time. If Lord of the Rings had not been written, I don't believe we would see the type of modern fantasy we see now. I don't know if we would have people like Brandon Sanderson or... Joe Abercrombie or Mark Lawrence. I don't know if we would see a resurgence of fantasy as we're seeing it today. It's becoming more mainstream. It's becoming a lot less niche. And I do think a lot of that is thanks to the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings books in themselves helped surge this renaissance of fantasy. But what really helped was when the movies came out. 
because everybody saw those movies. It didn't matter if you were a fantasy fan or not, or you were a Christian, or you had never even heard of Tolkien. There were plenty of people that went to see those movies that had never heard the name Tolkien, or if they had, they didn't really know who he was, or that it was linked to three books that made up The Lord of the Rings. I remember seeing posts of people saying things like, Oh, did y'all hear that there was a guy that wrote, you know, three books about the movies that just came out? So a lot of people thought the movies came first, and the movies were amazing. The movies were great for getting fantasy out into the mainstream. I did have a couple of gripes with the movies when they came out, just being a diehard Tolkien fan and very puritanical about adaptations, but as I've grown older, I sort of realize why certain things were left out or certain things were changed in the movies to make a better movie because a book and a movie are not equal. You can't just take a book scene by scene, line by line, and expect it to turn into a good movie. They're two different types of media. You have to realize that and they have to be made in the way their media produces something good. So those were the two big fantasy series that I was brought up on and like I said it was also very encouraged by the church it was encouraged by my mom and they were great books like even today stacked up against all the fantasy I've read across my life those series are still up there in the higher rankings the Lord of the Rings especially I still believe that that is one of the best, if not the best, fantasy series written, and I do believe it is the most influential fantasy series ever written. So, while these were pushed in the church and talked about and it was alright to like these, of course, when it comes to the early 2000s, we can't forget about the rising fantasy series of Harry Potter, which, at least in my church and surrounding churches, the Harry Potter phenomenon was demonized. And I never quite understood the hate for Harry Potter, because the people that pushed the hate for Harry Potter the most had A, never read the books, B, had never seen the movies, and C had never done any research on J.K. Rowling. But these books were demonized and ostracized, and I believe that there were even book burnings at certain churches of Harry Potter because it was so evil. But then when you asked people why it was so evil, they would talk about magic and witchcraft and sorcery and stuff like that, but then you would use a counterpoint of Okay, well, why was it okay for Gandalf to have magic in The Lord of the Rings? Or why was the magic in Narnia okay? And then they would always counter-argue that those were written by Christians, so the magic wasn't as real, and that people reading Harry Potter could actually get into witchcraft. And now, was it 20 years later, or even more years than that, I still have not met nor heard of anybody that has gotten into witchcraft or sorcery or dark arts or whatever you want to call it by reading Harry Potter. I eventually read Harry Potter like 10 years after that fact. 
maybe I'll review those one day. They're not my favorite series. I never got into the hype train like other people did. I think a lot of people were exposed to fantasy through Harry Potter, but as I said, I was already exposed through Narnia and Lord of the Rings, and then when I finally got to read Harry Potter, it was so hyped up that it definitely underperformed in my mind. I didn't think the movies were as great as people say. I think the best part of the movies is the music, especially the ones scored by John Williams. Those are Those themes are amazing and iconic at this point. I don't think the movies were bad. I don't think the books were bad. Uh, I do think book number seven had the most problems out of any of them. I felt like we were camping in the woods for 300 pages, and the same exact problem for the first half of the movies. You know, they split it into two parts. Part one was pretty boring, to be honest. So, Church was against Harry Potter. They pushed... Lord of the Rings, Narnia, so I wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter. But then something happened that really expanded my mind when it came to fantasy. One of my older brothers, the oldest actually, who were twins, he took a class in college that was all about science fiction and fantasy. And in that, he did have to read Harry Potter, which I don't think my parents were very happy about that being brought into the house. But thankfully, because there were lots of other fantasy books coming out that weren't all over the news and all being talked about from the pulpit, I was able to read a lot of fantasy that he was bringing home from this class. That is where I was exposed to Terry Pratchett, Robert Jordan with The Wheel of Time, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and a couple other different fantasy series. So I went from just the two series I had, Narnia and Lord of the Rings, to realizing there's a whole world out there that is a vast, diverse category of books that were similar to what I already liked, but had different ideas. There were different types of fantasy. There were different genres. Discworld has its humor to it. Wheel of Time took Tolkien tropes and then built upon them. I do believe the Eye of the World had quite a few Tolkien tropes, but I do believe as that series went on, it got farther and farther away from being just another Lord of the Rings. It had its own ideas. It had its own identity. Even though I never finished The Wheel of Time... I ended up not finishing it due to, I think it was book 8 or 9. To me, book 7, 8, and 9, they just all mashed into one boring slog. Like The plot was not being advanced during those books, so I ended up giving that up. Some of those, like the first six books were amazing, and then you got into these just very, very slow books that could have been... These three books probably could have just been one book, honestly. So that sort of got me out of it. I hope one day to go back and finish The Wheel of Time. So once that barrier was broken, and now I knew all this different fantasy was out there, I was slowly able to get more and more of those type books, just because now my brother's reading them, so he's bringing them into the house, and I'm able to read what he's reading. So... After, you know, Discworld came in, which all they read was The Color of Magic, 
my brother continued to read Discworld, so with each book he brought in, I was able to continue to read. The same with The Wheel of Time, the same with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I was able to read that whole series. And then after I exhausted those lists of books that he had been reading, I got into sort of a funk where it was more, this was right after high school, and I got into a funk where I wasn't reading as much. I never got to a point where I wasn't reading. I just slowed down quite a bit. But then I got to a resurgence of fantasy, and I really haven't stopped since then. The resurgence took place when I started reading stuff like I picked up the Dresden Files, I picked up the Dark Tower series, I picked up Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, whichever one you want to call it, depending on if you came with the TV show or the book. I read the book first, then watched the TV show, so Song of Ice and Fire. And then I really haven't gone back since then. I ended up getting a job where I had to drive around a lot, and I could listen to audiobooks because I was in the driver's seat like seven hours a day so I could get a lot of listening done so I went through some books that's where I got to where I liked authors like Mark Lawrence, Neil Gaiman, Stephen King and a lot of other authors like I definitely added quite a bit of fantasy to my repertoire and that is really where the nerd log took off when it comes to fantasy because now there is so, so many series from the past that I was unaware of to the present to series that are still being written right now. They are all on my radar. They are all on the list. And I am now going through the list and checking them off. And that was part of the reason I started this podcast. Part of the reason I started the Nerdlog was the fantasy side of things. So that is really the story of from when I started reading fantasy as a child with Narnia and Lord of the Rings to current day where I pretty much am reading anything that falls under the fantasy umbrella even though I do tend to sort of steer away from YA fantasy as much as I can, though I do sneak it in every once in a while. Like right now I'm reading Artemis Fowl. It's okay, but it's not my bread and butter. So that is the topic of the show. I hope you enjoy that. I will be back with another addition to that. We'll probably delve into either what got me into science fiction, even though that story may be too similar to have its own topic, But when it comes to video games, we can definitely break that up into a couple of different genres as to what got me into them, like Western RPGs, Japanese RPGs, platformers, sports games. We can talk about all different types of things and what got me into those. So we will be revisiting this at some point, but I just wanted to cover the fantasy bit today, which I think we did. So at this point, we are going to head straight into the nerd log and get back into some reviews. Initializing nerd log reviews. So the first thing I want to talk about today is the book of the week, which was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. This was the book club book of the month for last month, July. So I am doing this a bit late. I like to do it the first week of the month. 
or the first week of the month after I've read the book. I know I'm a little late, but better late than never. Artemis Fowl should be the first episode of September, as I am nearly done with that book as of this episode. So, let's talk about Hitchhiker's Guides of the Galaxy. This book is amazing. I love this book. I love the tone of the book. I love the writing of the book. So, let's go ahead and jump into the, the prose of the book. I believe that the characters are all very well written. I think they're very memorable. You have Arthur Dent, the sort of played as the straight man of comedy, where all the bad stuff is happening to him. So we are sort of latching on to his point of view, because that's sort of where we would be if these things were happening to us. Then you have his friend, who he didn't realize was an alien named Ford Prefix, because he didn't really know a good name to pick, so he picked that name, which I believe was a car at some point. You really don't hear of Ford Prefix, besides the character now in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then you have uh, Zaphod Beetlebrox, and Trisha McMillian, and of course the paranoid android who was brilliantly voiced by the late Alan Rickman, did an amazing job in the movie adaptation. I do have some problems with that adaptation, but that casting was definitely not one. That was an inspired casting for Marvin the Paranoid Android. The writing was on point and was hilarious. There were very, very few paragraphs that did not have something funny in them. The wit was dry sometimes, but it was a British book, so it did have that dry British humor, which I enjoy. Like I said, I love Terry Pratchett, who I believe he is the fantasy equivalent of Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams is the science fiction equivalent of Terry Pratchett. Uh, sometimes their prose to me is a little similar, but I love them both. You can tell a little bit of difference in the styles of writing. I do believe that Terry Pratchett may be a little more dry than Douglas Adams. Not dry as in boring, but as in dry wit humor. Douglas Adams also has some just absurdism humor in his books. So does Terry Pratchett, but Douglas Adams, I think it is featured more prominently. And I really do love absurdism, but I do think it does annoy some people, or some people's humor just doesn't jive well with that. If you're not a fan of absurdism or that kind of just random crazy humor, you may not enjoy this book as much as I did. I do think there's a bit of humor in this book for everybody. The story itself, very well done. It was, without giving away more than just like the first couple chapters, Arthur Dent is on Earth where he didn't realize his house was about to be demolished, so he runs out of his house and lays down in front of some bulldozers to stop the house from being tore down for a bypass to be built in place of his house. And then Ford shows up, and we realize that there is a bigger plan at play where there's a bypass that is actually going to be built in place of Earth. So Earth is about to be destroyed. So Ford is trying to get off the planet with Arthur because they're friends. 
And so that sort of starts that whole journey. I know in the movie, Ford was played by most deaf, but to me, Ford's character, I see David Tennant for some reason, especially some of the antics he did as the doctor in Doctor Who during his tenure in that show. I could just see with some of Ford's mannerisms. I do think Martin was a great pick for Arthur Dent, just as just as great a job as he did as Bilbo. This was, of course, before that, but he did a great job as a clueless Earthman who was just out of his league. I do think they picked a great British actor for that role. I do think like someone like David Tennant would have been a better choice, but Most Def did the best he could with what he had. I do think that also that the book had a fabulous ending with just a touch of a cliffhanger that gets immediately picked up in the second book, which is sort of named after the cliffhanger. So, spoiler warning, if you look at the title of the second book, the whole thing revolving around 42, I'm not going to go into what it is or why it is, but everybody that has heard of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy knows that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. That is big in the nerd culture. There's t-shirts, there's you know signs you can hang up in your wall, there's bumper stickers, there's stuff like that. 442, I've always loved that number, and this is the reason why. So, I had a blast reading through this book, so let me try to pick apart some cons. I do think the book's length was a little on the shorter side. I wish there were some more adventures that were thrown in, or at least the adventures they had were lengthened a bit. I thought that it ended rather abruptly. Once they got to the, the final planet, it sort of just rushed along, and the ending was sort of wrapped up in like two or three pages. You know, the whole reveal happens about what's really happening, and then it sort of fixes itself in a couple of pages. Though, with the propulsion system of the Heart of Gold being the infinite probability drive, it sort of makes sense for improbable things to happen. That's sort of one point of the whole book. So I can't fault that for too much, but I do think the book could have used a little more girth to it. A couple of the characters I think could have been fleshed out a little better. I do think Zaphod and Arthur were probably the most fleshed out of the characters. Ford did get some spotlight and some backstory, but I do think Trisha McMillian should have gotten a little more book time. I guess that's the word you would use for the equivalent of screen time when it comes to a show or movie, but she hardly got any mentions. As she was just more of a character of convenience to say certain things or to be the love interest or the girlfriend of Zaphod. I think she does get some more character development the further you get into the series, but we're not rating the series today. We're rating just the first book, which is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I do think a couple of the side characters could have been more well-developed. But really, those are my two biggest qualms with the books. I'm sure I could nitpick more if I really wanted to. 
I don't really feel like that's necessary here. I do believe this is a great book. The Nerdlog official score for this book is a 7.5, which is a high recommendation for me. I would tell you to read this book if you have any inkling of liking for science fiction or just humorous writing or just something new and interesting and different than probably anything else you've ever read. Read this book. It is a classic in the genre for a reason. Douglas Adams was an amazing author. I wish he was able to have written more books, but the ones that we have are great, so I would highly recommend you pick up this book and give it a read. You will not regret it, and you will most likely continue reading well on into at least the second and third books, if not all six books that are written, even though the sixth one is written by the author of Artemis Fowl. He's Eon Colfer. I really don't know how to pronounce that, and I really haven't seen anybody that really knows how to. So go out, get that book, read that book. And finally, on to the last review of the day, which will be Mega Man 3. By the time I got to playing Mega Man 3, which of course is after Mega Man 2, I did start noticing a sort of repetitive fashion of the games, and this may have come just because I was playing them back to back to back. I just don't feel like Mega Man 3 had that much to set it aside, or at least enough to make it a better game than what came before, which was Mega Man 2. So let me jump into the pros about what I did like about this game. Again, it continued the great platforming and boss designs that Mega Man 2 had. I don't think they were quite as good as Mega Man 2, but they were still really good. So it was a very entertaining game. This game also introduced a couple of staples that we now see in future Mega Man games and spin-offs, we see the slide brought in, the whole mechanic of being able to slide, which was a great new addition. It brought in a new element and strategy when it came to dodging and also for traversal. It really felt great. I'm glad they added that. I think it was a great addition. This also added the character of Proto Man, which as much as we knew about him, he had that special whistle before he would show up. Just such a cool character. You know, storytelling wasn't that big of a thing in Mega Man, but it just, Proto Man just always had this epic feel behind him. And still to this day, when that whistle plays, it's just a hit of nostalgia. And then I also believe Rush was introduced in this game. And he is a staple for the rest of the original series of Mega Man games for, like, summons for how to, with a spring and stuff like that. So that was introduced in this game. I believe this game was, to me, the longest one of the original, like, six Mega Man games. It took the longest to beat, simply because there was a lot of content. And I do think that's a pro, but I do think part of that's a con, which I'll get to when I get to that section. But this game did give you bang for a buck. I do not believe that people would have been disappointed back in the day spending the money they did on this game because there was plenty to do. 
That being said, that is probably because of the, you had to repeat four stages and fight a couple of reworked bosses, and a couple of those were like bosses that had been possessed by Mega Man 2 bosses, so you sort of had to fight a couple of Mega Man 2 bosses again, but they were in a different body, so that was sort of cool. Very nostalgic throwback to Mega Man 2. That was pretty cool. And, like, just the the jumping mechanics, the platforming, all that was fun. All that was great. No complaints there. It didn't, like I said, go above and beyond Mega Man 2. But the quality was still there. As for the cons, the length. I do believe that some of the length was added as padding just to make the game longer. And what I'm talking about are those four stages with those extra bosses you have to fight before you go on to the castle stages. Those stages were pretty much the same as four stages you had already been through, except for there was a mid-level boss and an end boss that you hadn't fought before. But it was very, very similar to what you'd already played, so that sort of was repetitive. Those bosses were also pretty tough. Those uh, ones that were copies of the Mega Man 2 bosses, they were sort of tough, a little harder than the Robot Masters before, but I don't know if that's necessarily a con. That's just part of the whole NES era difficulty. I do think some of the weapons were a little lackluster compared to ones we had seen previously. I think this is the one that had the top spin in it, which sort of was the worst power ever. I don't think I had used it until the final Wily boss. I think that was one of its weaknesses. You were able to use top spin and that killed it pretty quickly. But before that, I had not used it. I didn't even know really how it worked until that fight, until I realized that that was one of its weaknesses. So those were a little disappointing compared to the previous two games. So those are my pros and cons for Mega Man 3. So I give, or Nerdlog gives Mega Man 3 the score of 7, which compared to Mega Man 2, I gave a 7.5. So I do believe this one deserves a 7. It's on par with the original. Still a very fun game. I would recommend playing it. I would not recommend skipping this game. It is still fun. You're still going to have a good time. Like I said, it added some great concepts like sliding and Proto Man was a, an amazing addition and stayed a great asset for Mega Man for the years to come. I would recommend playing this game, especially if you're going through the Mega Man games. Don't skip this one. Continue playing. I will say, spoiler alert, Mega Man 4, to me, has a drop of quality. But we will talk about that at another time. At this point, this is the wrap-up for the show. I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. I ask you to please follow me on Twitter at NerdLogMedia. I hope you'll drop me an email with any questions, comments, or concerns to nerdlogmedia at gmail.com. Please follow me on Spotify. That is where the podcast will be uploaded first on Monday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
and then Anchor will get that out to other providers throughout the week. The podcast is available on most every major podcast hosting site, including Google, Apple, Amazon, iHeartRadio, and more. So wherever you get your podcast from, you should be able to find NerdLog. I thank you for listening, and as always, rock on and stay nerdy.